Wow. What a great word and song and a great job. I'm just so proud of all of our young people. And uh, I saw uh, from one playing the piano to one, one of our graduates that uh, two weeks from today, we will be in Solala, Guatemala, uh, serving the Lord along with 17 others. And so 19 of us will be leaving June 1st. And uh, we really ask you to pray over all of us as we finalize the last bit of planning and prepare to leave. God has blessed us with a church that sees a heart for missions. And uh, all of our trips are pretty much taken care of financially. We still need some money for Bibles. And God has showed up in a, a mighty way of... Uh, People who have donated to that. And so, uh, if you would like to buy Bibles for the children of the public school there that we'll be serving in, in Solala, Guatemala, uh, they're about two twenty-five dollars apiece. And uh, so, uh, just go ahead and write your check on the bottom, put Bibles uh, or Mission Bibles. And uh, for $100, we can, we can get, you know, you go ahead and give us, uh, $125 and, and uh, we can just round off the number we get. So uh, just be in prayer about giving uh, before we leave to purchase those Bibles. Today, if you're visiting with us, first of all, we're so thankful that you have come to support uh, your student that is graduating and support your family member who has taken the great step of faith in being obedient uh, in the symbolic nature of baptism, letting the world outwardly know what has happened inwardly. Today, we continue in the fourth installment of a look at the church. Through the Acts of the Apostles, we're just simply taking uh, verses from each chapter in context and looking at the beginning of the Acts church. I think back to one of my favorite books, and I shared this with the staff when I first came here. It was the book, The Church of Irresistible Influence by Robert Smith. In this book, he talks about ways that a local church can build bridges into their community and thereby share the gospel message. He uses his own church throughout the book as an example of how they dramatically impacted the city of Little Rock, Arkansas. Isn't that exactly what the first century church did? They dramatically impacted their community and beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Starting at Pentecost and then spreading out. And then we hear about they were first called Christians at Antioch. And then we hear of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and John Mark sharing the gospel through the Fertile Crescent and up through Asia Minor. And we begin hearing of churches popping up in little places where the gospel had been declared through Derby and Iconium and Lystra and many other places of the Decapolis. We see the churches of the New Testament where we see epistles Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and Philippi and uh, Ephesus and Galatia. That's exactly what kind of church they were. A church of irresistible influence. So, how are we to look like that? He said in chapter 4, in verse 13, look at verse 13. It said, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Boy, you let one of us meet someone famous. We go to Savannah for something and we run into some movie star making a movie. And we see someone, some famous uh, uh, actor or athlete. And we will let the world know all over social media of what a great moment it was to meet this person and to get this autograph. But when the world looks at us, can they look at us 
with the same kind of, uh, uh, of just awestruck wonder and say, they have been with Jesus. To begin with, listen, the church of irresistible influence will be hitting on all five cylinders. And what I mean by that is what we've covered in the past. Those five, five cylinders of, of the gospel motor in the church is number one, worship. We see in chapter 4 that they were preaching and praying and praising. The second cylinder of evangelism, they were proclaiming the gospel corporately, but also personally sharing the gospel individually. Listen, high school graduates, the church at Eastside can't do your job for you. Whether you are at East Georgia, Georgia Southern, whether you are in Augusta, Listen, past graduates, whether you are in South Georgia, North Georgia, whether you're in Alabama, Tennessee, or on the other side of the world, you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then God has called you to worship Him and to tell the world Jesus saves. I can't do your job for you. Your mom and dad cannot do your job for you. You cannot be saved by riding the coattails of your parents any more than you can serve God in your own power and expect God's going to bless you because He blessed your mom and daddy. It's time for you to grow up. It's time. The world declares it. You've been telling everybody else you're a grown up since you were about 12. Now you've got to live it. Now you've got to show the world. Listen, I'm an adult. I'm an adult Christian and I must share my faith. It's discipleship. Teaching, he said in verse 2, that they had taught the people. Fellowship, working together. Man, share. I remember the days when I coached football and I would drive the church van to practice because so many would come to our youth after practice. And I will tell you something, church. We, not, we must not come to a day where ball takes place. I've coached, but listen, practice, games, and everything else, we've got to put a stop to that when it interferes with God's purpose in our young people's lives. We must claim the ground again. You say, well, it's too, too hard. The door's been opened. I'm going to tell you, I used to be in a, a, a proponent of believing that. But I've seen what God has done in the pro-life movement in just the last couple of years and in the last couple of weeks. And I believe God can do whatever He wants to do. Do you understand that Georgia and Alabama's governor and, and congressman have written and signed into bills that protects life, that honors God? Fellowship, ministry, these are the basic components of the church. These five items are in our spiritual DNA. God has made us for worship. He has made us to share our faith. It's not up to you. It's a great commission. Go, he said. Many of us say, oh, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. But listen, I want to tell you something. I'm so thankful for a giving church, but you will not stand before a holy God and say, well, I gave to every mission thing and, and be uh, not guilty. God says not only give, but go. All of us are to go. And you get asked, well, what about working with Bible school? God wants your, you in action sharing the gospel. You say, well, I'm too old. Well, who's going to teach younger people? We need you, senior adults. It's not time to check out. It's not time to retire from gospel service. You can retire from the government. You can retire from, from the auto dealer. You can re uh, re retire from teaching. But God has not called you to retirement until we put you in the ground. Amen. Amen? Well, I'm not getting too many amens on that. But it's true. Thank God. Listen, one of my heroes just went to the... Went to home to be with the Lord the other day in his 90s. Warren Wiersbe, who wrote all the B-series books, Be Encouraged. I mean, he wrote all the way through some of the greatest volumes in my library. Warren Wiersbe wrote them. He is now with the Lord. 
the full series, exploring series on Scripture, Dr. John Phillips with the Lord. The great prince of preachers that I learned and tried to mimic and study after, Dr. Adrian Rogers with the Lord. Yet though they be dead, yet speaketh, we must be that voice that carries on the gospel. How do we do that? First of all, we must convey a message of hope. You watch cable and network news. You see any hope? Everything's just negative, 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 negative. They can talk about how uh, we are at the lowest unemployment rate. Somebody's going to whine that the people who are working don't make enough. We can talk about one thing and they will find something else wrong. Listen, you'll go, many of you, if not all of you graduates this year will go to a secular state university. And when they are a state university, there are strings attached. And the government oversees those schools because they, over, they give the money that helps those schools survive. So you can fully expect to walk in to some psychology class or some science class and them quote Nitschke and quote Darwin rather than quoting David and the Apostle Paul. And they will tell you that God is a figment of your imagination. They will pontificate about how ignorant Christianity is and how it's just a crutch. You must be ready, the Bible says, to give an answer to every man that asketh the hope that is within you. We must convey hope because college universities, TV, and all the actions of the world cannot, especially the Hollywood crowd and the music crowd, they will not. The only entity preaching hope is the church. First of all, I want you to notice the hope for healing. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the lame man healed. But then in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says this, Be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, dead <coughs> even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now I want an honest, true, stop for a minute, Minute, think about it and give a testimony, a quiet testimony. How many of you believe you're here by the grace of God through answered prayer? God has healed you, protected you, and delivered you, and you're here today because of the Lord Jesus. Raise your hand. Look around, church. You've got fellow believers. That's what the apostles were saying here. That's what we are to declare to the world. There are many. How many cancer survivors do we have in here? Amen. Look around. God has delivered. Cancer's not the end all. I still love that commercial where the woman went to the institute after some doctor said, you've got three months to live. She went to another doctor. And she, he, the doctor said, let me see the bottom of your feet. And she said, well, that's not where my cancer is. And they she took her shoes and her socks off and he looks at the bottom of your foot. She said, what are you looking for? And he said, an expiration date. She said, what do you mean? Well, that doctor said you had three months to live, but I don't find an expiration date. We don't know. You apply that into Christianity. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but bless God, we know who holds it. There's hope for healing. Church, apart from Jesus, there wasn't much hope for healing. Just ask the man who waited 38 years to be healed. Think about the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Think about the Syrophoenician woman and the other whose child was eat up with the demons. The disciples couldn't do anything about it. But now they were presenting the same hope. In this situation, there was physical healing. And Jesus can still do that today, church. How many do we have in the medical profession or first responder medical profession side of things? Raise your hand. Now, while you've got your hand up, how many of you have ever seen God do something 
that you or anybody else in the medical profession couldn't have done. You see that? Everyone, nobody lowered their hands. If you're in the medical medical profession, you've seen God work, haven't you? Going on that helicopter, you've seen God work, haven't you? I mean, Andrew, you've seen things that, I mean, for all intent and purposes, they were torn, they were ripped. It was a career-ending injury, and yet God does great things because people prayed. You say, preacher, you're, you are uh, one of them kind, aren't you? I say, oh, yeah, I am. I'm one of them kind because I know what God has done for me. I know. Isn't it amazing, Matt Tucker, when you know you're fixing to have surgery and less than 48 hours God delivers you and you don't have to have it? Amen? That's a good thing. He come to me, he said, and Michelle came to me and said, we got birthdays, we got this, we got this, and Matt's having surgery. And then all of a sudden I get a text from Matt that says, I'm a daddy. Pass the kidney stone. If you never have one, you just don't know the rejoicing in glory. And how we praise it, there's no, no way to worship like a just past the kidney stone worship. I'm just telling you. Listen, Jesus still does that even today. Even today. But notice, not only physical, but listen to me today. Jesus heals marriages. Jesus heals marriages. I could talk to you about a family member who got married young. And after about two years of marriage, no children, they were fussing and fighting and bickering and they divorced. Stayed divorced. Didn't really date. Just He was too busy hunting and running with his buddies and she was too busy working and running with her buddies and all that kind of stuff. And about a year and a half, two years later, they run into each other. They're kind and cordial and they talk a little bit and before long, one of them's called the other and before long, they start dating. And about a year later, they're back with the preacher getting married again to the same people eat to each other. And then about two years later, they had their first child. And about a year and a half later, they had their second child. And today they've been married over 40-something years. And they have two grown children. And they have about eight grandchildren. God did a great work and rescue that marriage. Don't tell me God can't save yours. Instead of whining and complaining every, about everything, why don't you take her or him to Jesus? There's hope for healing. Emotional healing. You feel just emotionally wrung out. I know I do some days. I'm going to tell you, there's been some days in ministry, I don't mean to whine, just telling you like it is. There's some days when you walk in from a funeral of a godly, godly man who had lived his life before his family and before his church for 70-something years, and you preach that funeral, and, and you come in from the graveside, and as soon as you walk in, the phone's ringing, and someone else in hospice, they've called the family in, and you turn right back, and you go back. And that goes on. You know, they say it happens in three. Sometimes it happens in fives. Or when you stand at the graveside with a young couple who have lost a small, a, a small child or a baby or stand with a daddy who don't know what to do when his 20-year-old got killed the night before. You don't know what to do when the 17-year-old has died and the young mother in childbirth or the 99-year-old great-great-granddaddy. Death's death. And it's never easy. But can I tell you, emotionally, there's hope for healing. There's hope. Psychological. Healing from addictions. Anything that's broken, Jesus can fix it. Amen? He can fix it. You see, outside of Christ, there's not much hope for anything. The world's broken. Marriages are broken. Societies, governments, schools, everything that we complain about is broken. But in Christ, He can fix anything. Kingdoms rise and fall with the power of His spoken Word. Do you understand? Now, I mean, I'm, I don't mean this to be 
demeaning. I, I'm, I'm preaching this to myself. Do you realize the, the God of hope that I'm talking about? Your God is the same one who spoke the worlds into existence. The one that you doubt can fix your marriage. The one that you doubt can fix your financial issues. The one that you think emotionally can do nothing for you. Hung the stars in the sky. Created man out of dust. You know, I, I can remember when I first went to work for Cobb County and we would have something broke. We'd have to go in late in the afternoon, something be broke, some electrical issue or something. And what we would have to do is we'd have to go to this one place that all of the blueprints and all the schematic designs were. We'd have to pull all those things and roll all of it out and find which specific page we would have to look for how this thing was to be fixed. Where uh, the power source starts, where it terminates, and where it runs, and all this kind of stuff. Well, I want you to know, God holds the design for every one of our lives. Every one of us. All you in the medical field, you realize he did the first surgery? And he did it without an anesthesiologist. He breathed life into Adam, caused the sleep to come on him, took a rib out and created woman. God is our only hope for healing. But only in Christ is there hope for resurrection. Look in chapter 4 verse 2. Being grieved that they taught the people. See, all this religious crowd, the Sadducees, the, the, the high priests, the elders, all these cats were mad and they were upset that the apostles were teaching in Jesus' name and teaching that Jesus was the one that resurrected. They preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees not only did not believe that Jesus resurrected, but didn't believe anybody else would. You see, in the Jewish religious community, Annas was the power behind the scenes calling all the shots. Five of his sons and one grandson and a son-in-law all became high priests. This family was given power by Rome and were allowed to rule over Israel's religious affairs. And as long as they towed the line with Roman authority, they protected their own. It was a quid pro quo. He did not want a message about resurrection from the dead, upsetting his apple cart. It would steal his power. It would steal his thunder. You know why people get upset? In churches, when it grows, people get saved, lives change, and Sunday schools grow, and we have new units, and we do things, and the whole crowd says, well, we ain't never done it like that. They're afraid that they'll lose their power. They're afraid they'll lose their little clique. Bless God, I wish he would just throw in a spiritual grenade and blow them all up. And radically change our life with the hope of resurrection. The high priest belonged to Sadducees. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They sound like modern day deists. They didn't believe in immortality or even afterlife. Therefore, they, they rejected the idea of resurrection. When Peter and John started preaching the resurrection from the dead, the Sadducees opposed it both on religious and political grounds. If the disciples' message was believed, think about this. The Sadducees and the high priests would lose their power in the temple and with the state. Their way of life was dependent upon there being no hope for resurrection. But we, like the disciples, proclaim loudly. I asked Adam in that baptistry. I said, you believe Jesus resurrected from the dead and we're risen in Him? He said, I sure do. That's what our hope is in. You know, if it, if it wasn't the case, when we baptized, we'd just leave them under the water. And like I always tell you, I, and I asked the question, I said, when they buried Jesus in the tomb, did they leave a leg sticking out? Can you imagine they walked up, you know, and they come up to anoint the body, and they come by to pay their respects, and the stones rolled almost shut, and see arm just hanging out. No. He was completely entombed, completely dead, completely sealed. 
And when we trust Christ, we've been completely washed by the blood of the Lamb. You couldn't save yourself. You can't keep yourself. And when you're buried under the blood, there is no arm. There is no hand. There is no past. There is no future hanging out. Completely immersed by His love. That's good right there. You chew on that a little while, you'll find hope. Listen, he said, I am the resurrection. John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he said, do you believe this? Imagine the hope that this message must have brought to the weary people who had heard there is no hope. We, we just got to do what the Romans says. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. We just need to get all we can and get it now. Does that sound familiar? We live in a world that says there is no God. There is no hope. All you need is to believe like us, accept the fact we're going to rule you and rule over you and rule around you and just give us all your money. We'll have all things even. I'm going to tell you, you'll wake up where they're breaking in your home for worshiping God. They'll take your guns. They'll take your kids. They'll take your worship. They'll take whatever they can get. My friends, stand in the liberty that is Jesus Christ. You say, that won't happen here. That's what they said in China in the early 1900s. They hadn't always been communists. You know that, right? It was not until after World War II. We see it in Korea. We see it in Vietnam. We see it all over. In places that even when the wall came down, they have slowly begun to rebuild it. Job asked the question in chapter 14, if a man die, will he live again? And then he answered his own question in chapter 19. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end He will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's hope for resurrection. Amen? What are you telling the world? Hope in money? Hope in education? Listen, you need to get education. You need to study. And you need to do, be all you can be. But be all you can be in Christ. Be what God's called you, not what you think. I ask kids all the time, what's your major? What you going to do? I don't know. That's all right. It's all right to say, I, know, I don't know until God tells you. Now, if you're 33, living in your mama's basement, and you still don't know what you're going to do, maybe you're not praying the right way. But ultimately, you can win the world. You can have a vast array of degrees. I mean, it can look like alphabet soup at the end of your name with all the degrees you've got. But if you don't have hope of salvation, it's all for naught. Nothing else matters if Jesus isn't Lord of your life. Listen, the hope for salvation, he said in chapter 4, verse 13, He told them that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's only Him and Him alone. Many of the people of the first century Jerusalem believed that the adherence to a set of rules, the law, keeping the law, doing all these things. You remember that's what the rich young ruler, he said, oh, I've kept all the law from my youth up. Jesus said, well, take everything you got, sell it, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. And he wouldn't trust Jesus. What's God asking you to give up? One thing. You know what it is? Sin. Or self. Same thing. To give up yourself. Trust Him. And He will save you. He'll save you today. He will save you for all eternity. Why do you keep asking? Why do you keep wondering? Why do you keep doubting and putting Him off? Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. Buried for you. Resurrected for you. The hope. The hope of healing and the hope of resurrection leads to a hope for salvation. Problem is, we can't meet this righteous standard apart from Jesus. It is through Him and Him alone we must place our trust. But not only... 
We must convey a message of hope. But notice, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And when we're, we're filled, he said in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. When's the last time you were moved by the Spirit of God? That God overwhelmed you. God overwhelmed you. I love watching these, these kids up here. I said, Y'all look, y'all look like a quartet. Y'all all matching. We didn't plan it this way. I said, but you look good. And you sound good. Didn't they do wonderful? I mean, awesome leading, special playing. Man, what a wonderful. I, I, I'm moved by the Spirit. I'm going to just, what have I done to deserve His love? That's what I heard through all the singing this morning. That's what I heard. That's what I heard over and over and over. What have I done to deserve your love, Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. I hadn't been a good enough daddy. Hadn't been a good enough wife. Sure hadn't been a good enough son or brother or pastor or friend or coach or any other hat I've worn. I have not done it well enough to deserve his love. But he loves me still. If that don't move you in the spirit, listen, the early church could not see, exceed, uh, succeed apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell them to wait for in Jerusalem? The power. The power from what? The, the Georgia power? EMC power? No! Holy Ghost power. And when God falls on us, we'll sing in His power. We'll preach in His power. We'll go on mission trips in His power. We'll have vacation Bible school in His power. We'll teach Sunday school in His power. We'll have fellowship in His power. We'll conduct sports camps in His power. The Holy Spirit of God. We ought to be emboldened. Listen, the world says, be soft. No backbone. Too much, too many, absolute insurmountable odds. But the Bible says He's made us to be more than conquerors. More. Not just conquerors. More than conquerors. When they became filled with the Spirit, they were emboldened. He said in verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto your servants, servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. O oh God, Lord, you know our hearts and you know what we stand in need of. Lord, give us power to be bold in your spirit. Now, if we just look around at who's opposing us, look, they had elders, Sadducees, high priests, government officials, the police, the religious police of the day. And there's all kinds of stuff today. I can't hardly look at social media, especially Twitter and all the infighting and outfighting of what's supposed to be the church of the living God and people criticizing everybody and anything. I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't have to write but one word and I'd say something wrong. But you know, it's never wrong to be right. To trust Jesus first and foremost. And I'm learning, oh, I'm learning. I have not learned, I am learning. Study to be quiet. I'm still learning. But then there's moments to be emboldened and not just looking around, but look inwardly at who God is and what God can do in our lives. Because it said in verse 8, that when they looked at who was emboldening them, it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He said, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. We need to be emboldened. And when they became filled with the Spirit, they were empowered. Empowered. We need to be bold in the faith, but we need to understand where our power comes from. He said in verse 30, by stretching forth 
thy hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. You cannot do it yourself. You want to be a godly mother? Pray. You want to be a godly husband? Pray. You want to be a godly leader in your community? Pray. Don't just give. Don't try to buy influence. Pray. Get on your face before God and change your world. The Spirit. Stay there until the Spirit moves you. Church, we need to pray until... Remember when we used to say this? Pray until something happens. There's a lot of truth to that. Pray until it happens. Pray. We're too busy to pray. We're too busy. we got too much going on. Too many things to see. Too many people to know. Too many places to go. They were empowered. Why? Because they loved the unloved. They couldn't understand. This man, he was poor, he was broke, he was begging, and yet they loved him. They loved the unloved, all the religious crowd, all these people, even in the face when they were beating them, locking them up. They weren't disrespectful. They loved them and shared the truth because we find out later that many of them were saved. Later on in chapters 5 and 6, and then excited in the Spirit. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, when it's a little more animated, somebody will say, well, you got excited this morning, preacher. I hate it when there's any Sunday that someone doesn't think I'm excited about Jesus. We get excited about ball games. We get excited about music concerts. We get excited when our kids hit a home run in t-ball. And we don't even count score. But yet we already bragging. Well, my son went five for five. Well, man, that's great. What's good? Oh, he's just four. Man, he's really got to tell. I, I believe he's going to go for it. Man, you wouldn't believe the things she was doing. How old is she? Six. She'll probably hate it by the time she's 12. The things we get excited about become dull and void when they're not centered on Christ. A spirit of excited worship is vital component to church hell. I'd hate to know I attended church set like this all the time. Wouldn't it be boring? It'd be boring without a Mike Toodle in our church. <laughs> Just telling the truth. It would be boring without my wife. It would be boring. It would. It would be boring without Miss Michelle coming by my office. Hello. How you doing? Pretty good invitation, wasn't it? It'd be boring without my very young birthday girl weekend financial secretary, Joellen, that keeps me hopping. And she finds creative new ways to lovingly tell me how I've messed up on something. It would be boring without the deacon body at this church. Can I just stop? And I know I tell you all this stuff sometimes, but I don't think you, I think you think I'm just trying to pump it up. I'm going to tell you, we had a two-hour deacons meeting Tuesday night. Two hours of some of the most blessed prayer, Bible study, and sharing. Amen, Chairman? Listen, one of our deacons shared a devotion and right smack in the dab in the middle of his devotion shared how God spoke to his heart and then we began to share how it was impacting us and how we need to hear about it and where God is doing in our life and where God wants our church to go. I'm going to tell you something. I left empowered, excited about what God is doing at Eastside because of a deacon body. Now how many churches can say that? I'm excited to see a young couple come and say, we want to be baptized together and let the world know. I'm excited when I see men in their 40s, men there 60 years old, say, I want to be a man of God. That's not happening everywhere. But it can. We ought to be excited. Hey, you get in trouble for yelling inside. 
I get to do it. I'm going, God called me to preach because He knew if I sat there every day, I'd look like somebody else. I would, I'd be asleep. God knew if I'm standing up, I can't fall asleep. But I, I'm excited about who God is and what God... I'm 54 years old. I've been in ministry since I was 19 years old. And I want you to know God is as li- alive as He's ever been. And God wants to change lives as much as He ever has. And God loves you with an everlasting love. Church, we must be filled with the Spirit. And when we do, we will be a growing church. What was the word you used this morning? Momentum. There'll be momentum when we're filled. When it happens, what do you mean it? Not it, Him. When He happens, the Holy Spirit, when God happens. Listen, we will be a growing church. He tells us here in chapter 4, and the multitude of them, verse 32, that believed were of one heart, one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought in these things and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Great things happened, church. They were growing. Any church that preaches the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit can expect to see growth. Just as growing physically is expected in our natural body, growing spiritually should be expected in our spiritual body. You're going to go off to college, you're going to start in your core classes, and you're going to take English, and you're going to take the math core, and you're going to take uh, the sciences, and you're going to take history, you're going to take those basic core classes that you're like, oh, I just want to get to my major. But you need the basics before you can go further. You're going to take all of that stuff. But you cannot just grow up here and not grow in your heart as a born-again believer or you'll just be dead. What good's a fig tree that's full of leaves that has no figs? Jesus said it needs to just be plucked up and cast into the fire. How many of us are bearing fruit? We'll be a growing church. We'll grow in number. We're seeing that already. Our goal, our spirit-led goal for this year, from this past Easter till next Easter, is to baptize on average one every other week, one person, one person Jesus died for, that He died that they may be born again. And since Easter, we baptized six. And we need someone to walk this aisle and say, I'm ready to be obedient. I want to be that number. Numbers matter. You know how I know that? People say, it don't matter. You know, usually the people who say that are the people that don't do anything and it's dying and going down. I don't know about you, but a hundred more fun than ten usually. And the truth is, do you understand God named one of the books in His Bible Numbers? And you're going to tell me numbers don't matter? He named a book after it. How many were saved at Pentecost? 3,000. How many were fed the first time Jesus broke bread with five loaves and two fish? How many when He had seven? seven, How many did He feed? 4,000. Now how did y'all know that? Because God wrote the numbers down by the Spirit. Right? How many apostles? Twelve. How many were on the cross beside Jesus? Counting Jesus, how many? And He tells us that, right? Number after number after number. He lists numbers of genealogies, 14 uh, generations to David, 14 generations from David to Jesus. Numbers matter! Because numbers are people. Dakota, you're a number. I'm a number. Neil, you're a number. Listen, all of us, all of us, Kim, you're a number. Haley, you're a number. We're all numbers, but we're all numbers in the right way, not just a number. You're the number. You're number one to Jesus. You're number one. When, well, listen, like the old song says, when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. 
Because you're number one to Jesus. When all the world says you don't matter, you don't, uh, you're too old, you're too dumb, you're too this, I want you to know you're number one to Jesus. Growing in number. God gives the increase, right? But growing in knowledge. He said in verse 2, they accused him, rightfully so, of teaching. We need to be teaching and growing. Are you a spiritually illiterate Christian? Are you still drinking milk? Because you know what happens when it's time to start eating meat and you still drink milk? Rot your teeth out. And you know why so many Christians complain? Because nobody will burp them. Kids that have, drink milk, what do you have to do? You have to hold them up, pat them, and rub them. Hey, hey, baby, come on. Christians won't eat meat. They're still sucking on a bottle. They won't be patted. They won't be rubbed. And don't upset me because, because I'm just real tender. And I'm, listen, study the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto Him, not to others. Grow in knowledge. Grow in unity. Growing together. They grew close. They grew close together. They were sharing with one another. They grew, grew in outreach. I want to read you some startling numbers. He said in verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When the church advertises through social media and through uh, the newspaper locally, things like that, for people to come, how, what percentage, zero to a hundred, do you think people that read that advertisement will come to church? Just guess. Ten? Anybody else got a guess? Two percent. So when we start thinking about spending money on all that stuff, think about two percent of the time people come. All right? If we have an organized visitation, we say, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to set up time, and I'm all for this. We're going to go into this neighborhood, we're going to knock on doors, we're going to hand out flyers. How much percent of the time do you think people will come? Because if you're like me, or they're like me, they don't want nobody bothering them when they're at home. I mean, I don't mind friends dropping by. But you see, a lost man views us no different than JWs or Mormons coming by. They see a bunch of believers pull up. Whatever you do, don't wear black slacks and a white shirt if you do. I'm just telling you. And don't ride a bike. All right, now it gets good. The pastor, the one we pay to do it. If the pastor goes out, he personally invites people. He shakes them by hand. He says, hey, I'm the pastor at Eastside. Met somebody this past week. I like to go out and sit on the front patio at Dairy Queen, a little wind blow through. I can sit there by myself, have my caramel sundae. And uh, just enjoy my lunch. And there was a young couple sat down at the table. Had a little girl. And uh, I said, how old? About 14 months. So they said, well, just, yeah, uh, just older than that. About 16 months. And I said, well, I'm the pastor at Eastside. We have a, we have a, a wee ones for two and three year old. Oh, yeah, we've heard about it. Heard it's a great thing. We're, we're from, from here. We're local. And I said, well, man, we'd love to have you and all this. You know how many times people like that come? Any idea? No different than organized visitation. 6%. Drives me insane. Because sometimes I'm thinking, I'm the pastor, I've invited you, why are you not come? 6%. If you, in your daily life, I'm not going to do what I was going to do because... Make the camera find me. But if it, on your daily life, you go to the feed store, you go to the courthouse, you're in your office, you're on the ball field or something, you're just hanging out, play golf, or go shopping, or whatever you do with your friends, your close, intimate friends, your circle of influence, and you personally invite them as their personal friend and acquaintance, what do you think the percentage is? 
What'd you say? Now you're getting good at this. 86%. There's an 80% greater chance for that visitor to come if you invite them personally than if I invite them. Church, we will grow in outreach by reaching the world for Christ. The only excuse we're going to have if this place is not full come vacation Bible school night is ourselves. We can do all the decorations. Man, we can learn all the dance moves. We can have all the material and the coolest skits in the world. But if all of us do not go out there and personally invite our friends and family, they won't come. We need to grow in outreach. And you know what happens? We'll grow in grace. He said in verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Not average grace, not mediocre grace, great grace. They became servants, not celebrities. The older I get, the more I don't want to be known. The more I want the world to see Jesus and to see what God is doing. Listen, they discovered the blessing of giving themselves away. So in closing, plenty of dead congregations. I hear about them all the time. Many that are dead and don't even know it. Churches that are closing every week. Selling. They're building concert halls and everything else. They're building flat apartments in some old church building. No congregation strives to be the first Baptist church of ineffectiveness. We want to be the church of irresistible influence. We want people to hear about Eastside, see us in action and say, you know what? Their life shows life and hope and the gift of grace. I see Jesus in them. I think I'll go over there and worship. You know what happens when they come? They meet Jesus when the church is filled with the Spirit. Listen, today as they come to the instruments... We must convey a message of hope to them all. From the pastor on Sunday in the pulpit to the people Monday through Saturday. We must pray as we go. Pray as we come. We must walk in the Spirit. Teach in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Go in the Spirit. With boldness and great celebration. So, as we began the sermon with, we close. It said they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Can the world say that about us? When the world looks at east side, may I draw it even down closer, when the world looks at you, do they say they've been with Jesus? Only you can answer that. But I know these altars are open for you to come and seek God's face and His blessing on your life. Pray. If you're saved, oh God, fill me with your spirit. If you're lost, Lord, fill me with your forgiveness. Save me to the uttermost. Change my life. Be obedient in baptism. Be obedient in church membership. Be obedient today. Whatever God's called on your life, come right now. Stand and come. Without hesitation, be obedient. He'll change your finances. He'll change your marriage. He'll change your relationship, your job. Trust Him today.